When I was 23 years old, all anybody wanted to ask me was, what do you do for a living? And what was my response? My response was, I do awesome. I'm Steve Armato, and I started this podcast to interview awesome people who build awesome lives. So now, let's do awesome. Welcome back to another episode of Doing Awesome. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this specific episode because this is with somebody who is not only a friend, but he is a a mentor, he is a, a coach, and he is one of the most brilliant and hardest working people that I know. And that is what we get into in this podcast. Like how hard, what, like you might think that you're a hard worker, but this person embodies hard work and he does it more efficiently than anybody you know, I can guarantee it. So stay tuned for this episode of Doing Awesome with Coach George Mahoney. Coach Mahoney, one of my, I mean, you're 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 like a mentor, friend, supporter, everything. Um, welcome to the Doing Awesome podcast. How are we doing today? I'm blushing with uh, with you saying that, but thank you, Steve. I appreciate you having me on. Of course, of course, and. You know, the point of this podcast is like talking to awesome people like yourself. Um, I want you to take me back to the very beginning because you coached me in high school, right? So we heard stories from you of, you know, how you got like going to Columbia, how you got on on the football team. Like that's where it all began for you and how, you know, that stuff you and me have very similar not schools obviously because you went to columbia but we have very similar stories in terms of like our journey as college athletes so can you take me back to leaving high school going to columbia where it all began walking on to uh, the football team yeah uh, i'm a senior at st joseph by the sea we are awful my varsity team wins wins one game in two years so what happened was, see, when I was a sophomore, we never lost a game. They built the program when I was a freshman. So we were freshmen, sophomore, teams never lost a game. That means nothing on a JV level. But by the time I got to varsity, 90% of those kids were thrown out of the school. By the time I'm a senior, 95% of them are thrown out of the school. So I'm on a five-man varsity team. Sorry, five-senior varsity team, and we stink. But I'm getting recruited by some colleges, and I think I'm good. I think I'm a really good linebacker. I think, I think, I think. And then I don't get recruited to play at Columbia. I don't get recruited to play pretty much anywhere at a Division One level, and my heart is broken. And my dad, he said, listen, you're small, you're short, you're slow. Just play baseball. You're better at baseball. Go play baseball. So I do get recruited to play Columbia at baseball. So I go play baseball there, and I absolutely hate it. And the baseball field is on a lower level physically. And I can look up and I can see the football field up into my right at every fall ball practice. And they're practicing and they're practicing. And I'm in baseball in the fall and I literally, I'm playing left field and I hate it. I'm just looking up at them saying, I want to be them. I want to be them. And before I even got to the school, I reached out to my high school coach. I'm like, do you know a guy there? Yes, I know a guy. Go into the coach's office, ask him if you can walk on the team. So even before I was looking up there, I was walking into that coach's office every single day. And I'll tell you, I went in there from September all the way up through February every day, got rejected every single day. And the only reason I even got an introduction to their head coach to let him know I wanted to walk on is that Marcellus Wiley was standing in the, the hallway 
and he joked around with the head coach that I was his brother. And if you know either one of us, you know we look nothing alike. And he got me in the conversation. But even then, the guy thought I wanted to film practice. And he said to me, you can only make this team. You're going to practice with us in spring ball. That's it. And you only make this team if you're better than every incoming freshman that's coming in. Because we already recruited our next year's class. There's no room for you. So uh, that is just the beginning of the story. But I'll skip to the punchline. I made the team. It was a grind and a half because Columbia at that point had not really been accustomed to walk-ons. And those coaches, they rightfully so tortured me to make my earn my keep. But uh, that's why I appreciate football so much. And, you know, I, I coming from that background, walking on to Division One program, I also I walked on to Sacred Heart Baseball. Um, you know, they, were, they brought kids in. They, they brought kids in that were freshmen, catchers, and they were just like, I don't even know who you are. Like, let's just you're going to see what it does and like I see where it goes. And I made the first round of cuts, second round of cuts, and then I made the team. And it was wild because they torture you. Like when you're not recruited, they torture you. And I know from my personal experience, that kind of shaped me, not just just in life in general. So how did that kind of shape you going forward in in life, not just football we'll get into you being a coach and data analytics and stuff but like how did that shape you in terms of life like you, you can't break me so every year you're a walk-on whether you like it or not my senior year i'm still a walk-on no one recruited me no coach was invested in my future you know they went out traveling the world looking for other guys so every day i'm trying to prove myself so now the thought after i got out of school but, you know, taking that chemical engineering schooling at the same time I'm a walk on a football, in my mind, I can do anything. There's no one that's going to break me. I'll break myself before somebody else breaks me. At least that's the mindset I have from that. Right. And so chemical engineering, you know, a lot of people are going to say, like, probably ask you, like, what does that mean? So I want, what does that mean? So in, in the purest sense, you're essentially supposed to walk into, say, some sort of a factory and make sure that that thing is making whatever it's supposed to make without killing somebody, and it's always the same, right? If I'm making a, a pancake in a factory, probably a bad example, but whatever <laughs> in that vat is supposed to come out the same way at the right temperature or the right pressure and not kill anybody. Now, I've, I've never really done chemical engineering in my real job, but that's what I was trained for. But overall, it trains you in being, a, I'd say, a master problem solver, which is why you guys get so many riddles in our training sessions. That's right. That's right. Now, I'll talk a little bit about this because, you know, like I said, you coached me in high school. You also you started advanced training, training, you know, college athletes. You said at the time, too, you you were like, this isn't just for football players. Like if you're playing baseball, you're playing basketball, like our stuff is going to get you better. And you trained me all through all through college. And now we do. We do it on Saturdays in the, in the winter. I'm still, I came back, hiatus came back, but take me to the, the, like you started advanced training for a reason. What was that reason and how has it evolved to where it is now? So it started because when I got to college, I didn't know anything about a weight room. Remember my, my varsity team was horrible. So I go into the college weight room and in, in our college, I think it's all Division One colleges, there's a, a, a varsity weight room where only athletes can train. And I was thrown out of it for being terrible. I didn't know how to squat. I didn't know how to RDL, hang clean, forget about it. So, uh, 
and my strength coach, who later became my mentor, and I say a great friend, he threw me out. He was he just called me Staten Island. You suck. Get out of here. I'm not coach. At one point, he refused to coach me. Wow. So I, I took that summer, the first summer all from Columbia, and I dedicated myself to being great at the details. Then when I started coaching at C, my first year out of Columbia, I was thinking, I don't want another one of these guys to go through what I went through. So I remember Joe Derrida, Kyle Luciano, they were seniors graduating, and I was thinking, let me help them get a competitive advantage the day they walk through the door of their college. Because it, it did slow me down. It slowed me down a lot. Physically and, I guess, uh, societally, physically I was slow and short and weak, but also you get that reputation as a bad weight room guy, it's going to slow down your reps on the field. Right. And so that's where it began, right? That, that's where it began. You started training these guys that were getting ready for, for college football. Um, and you always took you always took in people that wanted to be there to get better. And even if they weren't playing football, they maybe they were training for something else. You were like, all right, if if you want to get better, like you come here and you I use this a lot now with people that work for me, but you always would say, Don't throw paint on my Mona Lisa. Because you know, guys would be like, oh, I just did six reps and I feel good. I'll do eight on my next one. You're like, no, I wrote six. Like, I individualize your program for you. Can you talk about, like, individualizing these and, like, kind of customizing it to people and the the term of not throwing paint on your Mona Lisa? <laughs> so I did th – I still do. I think of it as an art. And what I would do is evaluate an athlete and see where do they specifically need help or – where can I capitalize on a strength? And I would literally sit for hours and write up their program. At the same time, and this is where the art came through, I was trying to have them do similar workouts to everybody else there. So for example, you were a baseball player in college. Every, it was, say it was bench day, I had you do dumbbell bench press instead of barbell bench press. But you're still doing the same type of work. And then when it came to the reps and the weight, I was critically evaluating what you did the last time. So I'd give everybody a sheet, have everything, everybody write everything down. And based on how you progress, that's how I geared your sets and reps the next time. But you'd always have a, a Frank Torres or a Ryan Smith literally try and throw paint on my Mona Lisa, make up their own workout, get sore, get tired, not trust me. And yeah, it would, it would legitimately eat at my soul because I do think it's an art form. Even the programs are right for me now. They're all to me art. And the thing is too, what was always, what I always admired was that you always said, I test this stuff out on myself before I give it to you. And your focus, your, you had a huge, huge focus on staying healthy. So can you talk about a, testing it, testing this stuff on yourself, doing these workouts to make sure that, you know, these guys aren't going to go in there and, like, kill themselves doing it and be, like, the focus behind staying healthy. Like, that's something that I think now you were – I feel like you were ahead of it. I feel like now trainers talk about it, but, like, 10, 15 years ago, this wasn't a thing. So where did you get into that? So I'll start with the, the training with myself, experimenting. It's – I wanted to make sure I didn't hurt any of you guys. At the time, you were all younger – your careers are a lot more valuable than mine. Right? I'm gonna, I don't want to blow your shoulder out and I can't play college baseball anymore because I'm doing something. Also, I experimented with it because I considered myself the worst of the worst athlete. So I'm thinking, all right, if I can do this, if I can handle it, then it's not too taxing or it's not too easy uh, 
And I always tried to, and we worked out in a public gym. So I had to make sure, is this going to work? Can I do this actually in a, it seems good on paper, but is this reality? Hence back to the part of, of the artwork. So that's why I would experiment with on myself then. Now you guys do, now you guys are part of this experiment with me. Now that we're training outside and you're all grown men and uh, you sign the waiver, right? Some of these things. Sign the I, waiver. That's it. Some things we are beta testing on our own. These speed sensors, some drills we're doing. You now, you guys are the experiment for the rest of the world. Uh, the other part, I can't remember what the other part of the question. Was. What was the other? Uh, part the focus the on the focus on health. Oh, the focus on health. So I'm a coach, right? So uh, I'm a coach, and I was coaching football before I was in advanced training. And I'm thinking, oh my, it doesn't matter if this guy can bench 400. If he blows out his shoulder. He can't play. And I, one thing that always plagued me at sea coaching, because we played on that wet mud field, was sprained ankles. So I'm thinking, how do we avoid people spraining their ankle? And then those, you know, at the time there were still speed coaches and they were focusing on a 40, but I'm thinking about how do we help guys get hit and not get knocked over, which is why we do a lot of overhead work or band work to try and stabilize the body. How do we start and stop? So to me, as a coach, I was thinking, how do I not break these guys? and How do I make them bulletproof? Because they're going to take hits. How do we keep those guys on the field? And Steve, you know our offense and C was this brutal double wing. So we'd start the season jacked up. And then by the end of the season, we were half the team we were. So that is why in my head I was thinking, how do I bulletproof these guys? Right, right. We were We used to get, I mean, we used to just get killed, like through practice and just you're practicing just the, you're just practicing hitting each other for like we in camp like just a week of just beating each other up for like two like twice a day it was br brutal but going on to onto this like i feel like you've always been innovative in the way you do things because when we were at sea you I'd never heard of a three-five. We ran a three-five defense. I'd never heard of that before, and I loved it. Like we, we would be able to run around. We had a lot of freedom. There was a lot of different blitz packages, but I'd never heard of that before. And like you've done, you're a big, you're into data analytics too. Like I feel like you've been at the forefront and have always thought differently. So like where, where did that start? Where you started thinking differently than these conventional football coaches that are like either old school or only do things a certain way. I feel like you, you were always out of the box and constantly evolving. So can you like really talk about where that came from? And then we'll get into the analytics stuff. Probably came from being a, a five foot eight, 190 pound inside linebacker. And at the time at Columbia, they were 300 pound linemen. They were huge. And they had to find another way. The other linebackers were six, two, 220. And they were shedding blocks by vicing that guy and throwing him on the floor. And I'm thinking, I, I can't do this. I need another way. And I remember like a guard would pull to the right and I would hide behind our nose tackle to the last second and go. And guys would say, we can't find you. You're too short. I'm like, okay, I need, a, I need another way. Also, growing up watching Bill Parcells, the head coach of the Giants, he seemed like he always put the right person in the exact right role for what they did. So that 3-5 defense, the reason we made it was that it was just a bunch of linebackers at sea. Most of our guys look like linebackers. So a 4-4 wouldn't work because we didn't have four linemen. Uh, a 3-4 might have worked, but we had so many linebackers. We didn't have a lot of DBs and we didn't have a lot of D linemen. That we, that's what we came up with this 3-5. And it's really, to me, it's like, how does this restraint build creativity? Right. And so that leads to 
which is awesome, awesome way to think. Cause I feel, I feel like a lot of times coaches like running a system and they'll just plug people into the system regardless of what those players are. If that, if that makes sense, I hope I'm saying this the right way you are. You are. where, where you're tailoring it to the team that you have. And that brings me to data analytics. Analytics have taken the sports world by storm over the past, like probably like 15 years. Like what, when did you really get start getting into the data analytics stuff? So uh, I got really serious about data analytics, like like the level I'm at now after I get got fired as a high school head coach because I was doing some contrarian things based on, I'd say, moderate analytics. And I'm not going to say that was the 100% reason why I got fired. There was probably about 30 other reasons, good and bad, but... uh. I went back and questioned myself and said, am I doing this right? Am I, am I a jerk? Like, are all my analytics wrong? And then it really made me dive into the, the details even more. And, and, and that's what took me to the level I'm, I'm at now in terms of just completely and totally being obsessed with it. So why, the question now is why am I obsessed with analytics? It really came from being a defensive coordinator. So if people haven't coached defense in their life, it's the worst thing in the world to coach defense. <laughs> Because not only do you have to break down film every week, you also, during practice every day, have to be a choreographer. You're literally writing all the offensive plays with 11 guys who don't care about it on scout team have to do. You have to write those plays. You have to try and figure out what plays on offense will give your defense trouble. So you're scripting an entire day, and it's awful. Oh, and oh, by the way, now the leagues favor nothing that you do because the rules only care about offensive players. So being a... Uh, I don't know, an efficiency expert, I was thinking, how do I do, how do I make this easy on me? Because I hate these offenses. I hate their guts. So one of them, Steve, was what if we just never gave the offense the ball, right? We can't stop them. So what if we just onside kick and never give them the ball? Or every time we try and punt, it's a bad snap and it's five yards, we're giving the ball back. What if we just go for it on fourth down? And now it's evolved to, well, how do you get it on fourth? How do you get the best onside kick? What is the implication of not getting it? So for me, it was the pain of being a defensive coordinator. And for anyone out as a defensive coordinator, I get it. it sucks. Uh, so that's what drove me to the analytics because I wanted an easier way. Yeah, and I and the way I've heard you explain the like the onside kick thing, like especially especially at the high school level, like you're not really you. It's rare at, in a high school football game that you find the guy that's going to just boot it into the end zone. So, like, you're really talking about, what, like, an eight-yard difference if you don't get it back. So, like, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Because I feel like I know it makes sense. To me, it makes perfect sense. But to a lot of people, they don't really understand it. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about, like, that aspect of that? Yeah, most, uh, most people hate it. It's, yeah. It, it. Yeah, the real diff. there's a risk versus reward, right? The risk is you kick it off in high school football to the other team's best player. They have a, you have 11 guys on your kickoff team that really probably don't want to be there. They're going to run down and either get a concussion, get banged up, or they're just not going to run down at all, and the guy's going to run it back for a touchdown. So my other thought was, okay, how do we keep our guys healthy? I don't want to put our starting defense on the kickoff team because now they're exhausted after the kickoffs. And I remember that being a player myself. I'd run down on kickoff, and now I'm tired. And then mm -hmm. how do I limit the, the risk here? Okay, we'll kick an onside kick. And where do, most on, where do most kickoff returns go to in the high school level? Maybe the 35. Where is the onside kick going to? Maybe the 40. All right, it's a five-yard difference. Who cares, right? Right. So 
was for me the, the evaluation of it. But then I started going deeper of, okay, we do kick an onside kick. We don't recover it. What percent of the time do they, they score after that actually happens? And there were some times where they scored that, the, that basically the field position didn't matter at that point based on the high school data I had at that time. It only cared about the length of the return. So the length of the return would dictate the actual points per possession that they would have. So I don't want to go too deep and blow people's minds out here, but in my mind, it was the risk versus reward of guys get hurt, guys actually want to do it, and you're sacrificing a couple of yards of field position. The biggest risk is looking like a moron to all the parents and the fans who don't care about analytics because you're always a moron every time you get it. I'm sorry, you don't get it, and you're kind of not a moron a little bit if you do <laughs> Well, I, I think that's like, that's, that's tough anyway, coaching like high school kids anyway, like parents always think they know better regardless of what you do. Um, I just feel like that's just the thing regardless anyway. And that actually brings me to this question for you, which is we grew up in the same place. Like you're, you're older than me, but we grew up in the same town. We both grew up in Staten Island, right? So there's just a lot of things that you are not typical of what comes from Staten Island. And I'm not like trying to trash Staten Island. I have a lot of friends, I have family there. And it's just, but where, like, how do you think growing up on Staten Island shaped you as you went through life? Because you're, let's be honest, you're kind of an unconventional guy from Staten Island. Like not a lot of people from Staten Island go to Columbia and are chemical engineers. So like, how did that shape you as you went through life? Yeah, well, I think in many ways, I'm just, I am exactly like a Staten Islander, and in some ways, I'd say I'm not. So I, I would I'd say this. I've always been boring. It was since I was a little kid, I was boring. I'd go to sleep early. Uh, I was thrown out of my bachelor party because I went to sleep in the bar. You know, like, And it wasn't because I was drunk. I'm just a loser. I'm going to bed at 10 o'clock at night when I'm 25 years old. So th that was one thing that made it easy for me to not want to go out and live the typical uh, Staten Islander life. But the, the thing I think that really molded my mind of not wanting to be in constant, I don't know, to do what everybody else does, to be unconventional, in, in my mind it was like, I can't be the same because I don't want to be part of this rat race. So I worked with my dad on his heating and air conditioning truck since I was 10 until the age of 37. And so you're working for your father. There's no, no one's being nice to you, right? It's your dad. No holds barred. And I just remember being like, man, I'm a kid. I want to go home and I'm tired of, of waiting. I'm tired of waiting for people to show up at the house. I'm tired of waiting for the parts to get delivered to the, the shop. I'm tired of waiting for this mechanic to not show up for work. I'm tired of sitting in traffic on Staten Island. So for me, doing that just ate at my soul to the point where I was always just trying to find a better way because I knew I was never getting that time back. So that mindset in everything I do, including coaching football, is how do I eliminate all the stupidity or the waste so that I can keep the most valuable thing to me is my time and, and my attention. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. And like bit piggybacking on that kind of like what are, what were some of like the toughest things that you've had? You're a successful guy. Like you, your job, your, your coaching, like you have a business on the side too. Like you do a lot of things. Like what were some of the toughest things that you had to go through to kind of get to where you're at today? I just want to take one piggy, uh, one step back for a second about being just different. Because <laughs> yeah. my parents were on, they'd probably say other things. Like, uh, so I had a real problem with being wrong. So first grade, they, the teacher called my parents to the school and said, your son is visibly upset. I remember they would call us to the blackboard and say, like, what's two plus three? And if I wasn't the first person to get it right, I'd be pissed. 
So they called my parents and they're like, what are you doing to this kid? <laughs> but I would, before school, I would actually wake up early, like four, five o'clock and read the textbook before we got to school because I didn't want the teacher asking a question that we wouldn't know. Now, why that is, I have no idea, but I wanted to know what was going on in the Revolutionary War before Mrs. Cummings said what happened in the Revolutionary War. I wanted to just spit it all out. Why that is, I have absolutely no idea. I, I, that's, yeah, I would, see, I would have never done that as, as a kid. I, I just, I was the guy who was doing my homework. I'd wake up at 4.30 to do my homework before I left for school at 6.37. So that, that like, cause my, my father, you know, my father, my father just, he wasn't like the guy who was on top of you to like do the homework. He was, he just expected you to do it and he didn't care how it got done or when it got done. But if he went to parent teacher conference and found out that you weren't doing homework, you were in some trouble. So like, I was always the guy who was just like, all right, it's, I'll get up at four 30 tomorrow and I'll do the homework and that's it. I, but I was not reading textbooks to, to just make sure I didn't know anything in class. I was kind of like, I was out to lunch a little bit. It's but, still pretty uh, sick that you get up at 4.30 in the morning to do your homework before leaving at 6.30. Yeah, that was like, yeah, that was, I guess that's why I used to work out with you at 5.15 and I still show no up. No sleeves at, on. No sleeves on. No sleeves. I have sleeves now, but as I get in better shape, I will, the sleeves will start coming, coming off. And it's also freezing. I can't, like, I'm, it's freezing when we do it for most of the year. So, you know, once it gets warmer, well, you know, four degrees with pulling chains, that's, you need, you need sleeves. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so what were some of the things that you've had to go through to kind of get to where you're at today? I know like you've, you've coached at a bunch of different schools. You, you know, you're, you're successful. Your business has, you have a podcast as well, an advanced training podcast. So like, what are some things you've had to go through to get to where you're at? I, I think it's a, a lot. It's a lot of failure, right? I said before I was uh, fired as a high school head coach, you know, a year and a half into it. Be, being a walk-on at Columbia, just working on my dad's truck. Even at, at sea, making the baseball team there was a problem. I think it was just that nothing ever came easy for me, ever. Uh, people think I'm smart. I'm not. I'm dumb. I, yeah, I got into Columbia, but it was through hard, hard work. If you gave, you said to me, tell me like nine times 13, I can't do it. I need paper and pen or I need Excel. I need something. To me, it was always about, I got nothing. I have no talent. I'm, I'm a dummy, but I, I have to outwork everybody else. Even when I train with you guys, I'm like, I'm the worst guy here. I'm the worst guy here. I got to figure out a way to, to keep up with you guys forever. I don't, I'm, I'm getting old now. Now it's starting to scare me, but that's the mindset I've had. It's the mindset I've always had. It's just, uh, I'm this underdog thought. And I think it's also the, the reason I coach you guys, because a lot of you guys feel the same way about yourself. Not that you hate yourself, but this healthy chip on your shoulder where you got to be the best, even if you weren't born with all the, the natural attributes that you wish you had. That, yeah, that is that is true. I, I still feel like I'm the worst guy at advanced training. So it's like, it's crazy. It's crazy when you leave and come back, though. I don't know how many people have actually done that. But like when you leave and you come back and like, People are like, oh, like, but you've kind of been like at that point I wasn't working out. But even when I came to the tough man when I was working out, no cleats and just vomited everywhere all over the field. Like, just like you can't, you just can't prepare for it. Like, you just got to be there. You know what I mean? Like, it's you can't prepare for that type of stuff. But you've built. I'm just going off on a tangent, so I apologize for that. But you've built a lot of relationships throughout the years, whether it be in coaching, whether it be in business, whether it be at work. 
how important um, are those relationships? And do you have any advice for people on like kind of how to like keep up with them and like kind of nourish those relationships? I'd say, and this is probably weird, but the closest relationships I have outside of my family right now are the advanced training guys. I, I And I know you guys are much younger than me. That's why I'm saying it's weird. But one, you guys keep me young. And two, we do something where I think there is this just communal bonding of hitting the sled in negative four degree weather in a dark, cold January morning where you can't feel your fingers. There's a bonding experience to that. So to me, a big part of why I keep advanced training going, I mean, there's sometimes I'm like, man, these guys are getting on my nerves. I wish I could retire. <laughs> but it really is that camaraderie that we've built. So for me, socially, that's, the, that's probably one of the closest connections I have. I absolutely have my, I have this group of like five best friends that I grew up with that we still connect. We make it, we, it's hard. We make it a point to stay together. Uh, and then I think, you know, family wise, that's one thing that I've put as the, my number one priority is my health. My number two priority is I have to make time for my wife, my parents, because that everything else means nothing if I don't have it, those people to share it with. I'd say work-wise, what I have to do, Steve, is maybe once every three months, I, may, I literally write down who my mentors are, who my close contacts are, and I make it a point to reach out to them with some form of gratitude. Just hey, thank you. Just thank them. Hey, you made me do this. I'm doing it. I, you know, I'm hoping that I'm living the life you wanted me to live. Can you, can you uh, talk about like some of your mentors? Like how important do you think they are? They're, they're huge. Uh, they are huge. And I, I didn't realize how important it was till I got older because I, I keep meeting people all the time who are in my mind molding who I am right now. You said I'm innovative, but I, I might be a collection of all, all the mentors that I have, like little tidbits of stuff that they taught me. And, uh, I'm realizing it now as I'm older that they, they made me me. So, and there's, there's different ones in different pockets. So my high school football coach, Dino Mangiro, he's a mentor to me. You know, he was the first guy that ever coached me in football. And I was, he just, and you think it'd be football stuff, but it's the way he teaches. He's an insane teacher. He makes complex things very simple. And I've taken his way of presenting and I use it at work, right? He's my football coach. I'm not talking about X's and O's here. I'm talking about how do I detail a presentation or give a speech for work or maybe even in the podcast. My strength and conditioning coach, a guy who threw me out of the gym, like I said before, guy who I thought hated my guts and probably did. You know, I, in a weird way, I made him love me because I was like, you, you can't throw me out of this gym. I'm going to be the hardest working guy you've ever had. I'm going to make the biggest transition and damn it, he he ended up loving me. I don't know if he wanted to, but he ended up loving me. Coach McKinney, if you're listening to this right now, you know it because I, I text him <laughs> Father's Day like, hey, you're the, you're the second father to me. He, well, he really was. When you're in college, your strength coach is like your second dad. You know, work-wise, there, there are people, Probably this audience probably won't care too much, but a guy named Winston Lede, I read his book. I stalked him. I found him at a conference. He originally blew me off unintentionally. I found him again. And then uh, he became one of the best mentors I've ever had in anything ever. So like, I'm just, I, there's a hundred people I can name, but to me, it's important to find the right ones. Don't ask them. Don't say, "Can you be my mentor?" You know, that, that's that's tough. Don't ask them that. Find real legitimate questions, but then seek them out for things that you legitimately need help with. And then when you do it, reach back out to them and let them know how much you appreciate what they did. See, that's good advice because a lot of people just call people and are like, hey, can you mentor me? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. No. Um, 
it's really adding like asking good questions leads to stuff like that and then like you said gratitude for that so that's that's great advice for really anybody that that's listening to this especially there's probably a bunch of younger people listening to this that are looking for that like that's just great for them to know um but i have this is a good one for for me to ask you here because I know like how you feel about this, but like, can you talk about your thoughts on morning routines and your morning routine? Yeah. Uh, I think they said like a routine for the intelligent man is a sign of ambition. So that's the thought that goes through my head, usually most mornings, but to me, you need one. Most successful people have a morning routine. Why? Because it's a thoughtless thing that kickstarts your day. So for me, the prerequisite every morning I wake up, there's three things that have to happen. Movement, got to move. Water, got to drink water. Sunlight, got to get sun in your eyes. Those three things have to happen. If they don't, the rest of my day is in trouble. So I'll tell you my morning routine right now. This is, this is pretty much it. And I try and wake up the same time every day, 4.30. I get out of bed, rip my shirt off, look in the mirror, and do like a five to seven minute flex. I've talked about this on the podcast. It sounds yeah. extremely vain, but I, I, you know how I work out. There's no bicep curls. There's no tricep extensions. No, none of that. The morning flex for me now is because there's literally none of that. And I'm thinking, well, how am I going to keep my biceps looking decent, right? But also it's, it's me paying the piper. Do, am I eating right? Am I not drinking alcohol? Am I getting enough sleep? That mirror is not going to lie. The scale can lie. I figured that out the hard way. That my scale will differentiate fiber three to five pounds based on how much water I had, bowel movements, whatever, right? But that mirror is not going to lie. So that helps me make sure that whatever I did, whatever I did the day before, I'm paying the piper in the, in the mirror the next morning. Then after that, I get out my Theragun and I do reflexive performance reset. It's called RPR. And then it just wakes up my central nervous system. It gets my body ready to go. I don't necessarily need to do it. I've gotten to the point where I'm good enough, but I just, I hit these points on my body. My, my nervous system's ready to go. I walk downstairs. I drink, I don't know, 48 to 60 ounces of water. Then I grab my dog. We go on a walk. So that's my movement. Uh, that's my water. Hopefully it's my sunlight, depending on what time of the year it is. And then my day is started. But for me, that's an everyday routine. No snooze button. Get up at the same time. Go to bed at the same time. So I get up at the same time. And that's how I roll every day. So no snooze button, but do you set an alarm or do yes, you wake I, up naturally? I set an alarm. Uh, I don't wake up naturally. My wife wakes me up because she wakes up at 3.30. So she wakes me up at 3.30 and then I'll get back to sleep hopefully like 3.45 and then 4.30 I'm out of bed. There you go. All right. I like that. That's a very, that's a, that's a, that is something that I still struggle with is like morning, a morning routine. I struggle with it because... I just wake up and I like to start working immediately. And I know some people say that's not good, but I just feel like if I get a bulk of work done before like seven o'clock and that's uninterrupted, like five to seven, if I knock out a bunch of things like focus, nobody's bothering me because nobody's awake. So like my wife's still asleep. I feel like if I knock that out from five to seven, like I'm good to go the rest of the day. If people, people can't interrupt me the rest of the day because I already got the bulk of my stuff done. But I also know that that like at some point I'm going to need to switch that up. I think. I'm with you. I, it's that morning routine. If I have analytics, which I'm obsessed with that I want to jump back on, it is so hard for me to not run to the computer and start breaking down data. 
but I know fit, like mentally I'll get that work done, but physically for the rest of the day, I'm a step behind. I'm always yeah. a step behind if I don't get that morning routine in. Yeah, I get that. So now do, I know you're not, you're very cognizant of, of things like, or like of probably being on your phone too much and technology and all this stuff, but like you still work with computers, you still have a cell phone, you record podcasts. How do you take time to like disconnect from everything? Like when you're not working at all? It's, it is hard because this thing, you know, people paid a lot of money. My dog's on the front of them. Uh, <laughs> people paid a lot of money to distract you, including the people that made my dog's picture just show up on the front of that thing. There you go, yeah. <laughs> so to me, A, it's not easy. B, the best things that I do is walk my dog. And I was looking at somebody today. They're walking their dog, and they're not only on their cell phone, they're scrolling through their phone. And I'm thinking, man, your poor dog. Like, give this dog 10 minutes. Give this dog 10 minutes. So for me, I try my best that while I'm doing one thing, I don't do another thing. So if I'm walking my dog, I'm walking my dog. If I'm watching TV with my wife, I take the phone out of the room. But guys who know me, you know I'm sending you stupid stuff on Instagram. I'm texting right back. So I'm not perfect at it. The, thing I, the major thing for me, the biggest one, is if I wake up early and I can't sleep, I've now fought the urge to just scroll aimlessly through Instagram. I won't do it before bed. I won't do it when I wake up. I will just put on calm, meditative music. But also, Steve, I'd say a good one is to de literally dedicate time. So I've started journaling. Block it out in your calendar where you've got a pen and paper. You can't do anything else. You write stuff down. And that's another way to not get distracted. Yeah, I like that. That I've, I've started, we, me and my wife like just started doing this reading before bed and just leaving the phone like outside i leave the phone outside for because when my alarm goes off i just i have to go get it to shut it off it's not next to bed i can't hit snooze so like once i'm up i'm up so but well, now we started reading and it's it just is good to not like look at the phone for like an hour even if it's 30 minutes like it's like oh like the first time we did it my wife was like i slept better last night i was like yeah me too so it's it's like it's really hard but we're you know Something that that we're that we're working on over here. It's it's difficult, I, but I love that idea of putting that phone across the room or outside the room. That's brilliant. Yeah, I put it in the kitchen. I have a charger. I have a like because we live in an apartment, so the kitchen is next to the bedroom. And as I leave it in the kitchen, it's on a charger out there overnight. I get up, I I shut it off, and now I I realize when I look at my phone first thing in the morning, my day like kind of spirals out of control. So I just put the phone back down and I just go do like I start working and do what I have to do. Because if I look at the phone, like the day, my day is, is not destroyed, but I'm behind for the rest of the day. It's, right. it's not, right. it's not, it's not good. Um, I do want to ask you this because I know you're, you know, I know the type of person you are and like you listen to a lot, you read, you listen to a lot of podcasts, you watch a lot of things. You got me on Chimp Empire, which was incredible. But like, do you have a, a specific book or movie that's changed the way that you viewed the world? A lot, a lot. I'm looking <laughs> at my bookshelf behind me. It's it's filled with books that have changed my mold, my uh, my mindset or molded my mind. But the, the four hour work week was one of the ones that just it slapped me in the face because you're talking about my upbringing, my dad, my mom. It was you have to work harder than everyone else at everything all the time. And then I read the four-hour work week, and it's like, oh, I don't need to be the best at mowing my lawn. It's okay to have somebody mow my lawn so I can just <laughs> And uh, that, that really kick-started a lot of other thoughts in my head. 
I'd say there's another book I talked about Winston Liday before. It was about maintenance. I won't get into that. But in that book, he references about 20 other books. I'm like, how is this guy so smart? And I realized he was reading all these books on behavioral science and human psychology. And now I've become obsessed with that. Why do people do what they do? Why do people make mistakes? Why do people think something's true when it's not? Why, do, why does somebody give up and the other one doesn't? What makes a great leader? Those things have also shaped my life. But I'd say the, the biggest one was the four-hour work week because it's given me time to read more. That that book, I've I've read it twice and like I'm still like it, it slapped me in the face as well. And I'm still trying to figure out how I can work four hours in a week. Like I'm still trying to get to that point. It's just it's very tough. I know what he was doing. I do like the email thing where he sets an automatic autoresponder to, to people. It's great. Um, I just, you know, it's, it's tough to implement. I'm trying to implement that still, uh, the, that book, but it's, a, it's a, it's really a great book. Um, I, so this where I, this is like a little bit of a surprise question here, but where do you see advanced training going in the next like three to five years? Three to five years, I'd say, I don't, I hope, I, my thought right now is three to five years, I'm still alive and kicking and as healthy <laughs> as I am right now. So I still see me running it. I still see this crew doing it, barring guys having three kids and moving away, but it's pretty sick. We have guys like yourself that live in Jersey driving to get there. We have guys that live in Jersey showing up in the middle of the week. So three to five years, I think it's very similar to the way it is now, minus some different types of challenges and some different types of tough men. It's, like, can you, I feel like I need you to explain a little bit more about the things that we do there. Like, because I try to explain this to people and they just don't understand. They're like, why are you waking up? They're like, it's Saturday. Why are you getting up to do this? And I'm like, oh, like, we're, it's, I'm like, it's just like, it's a group and the, and this and that, and the, we pull sleds and we do sliders and we sprint. And they're like, I don't know what any of that is. And they're like, when you say you're pushing and pulling sleds, like, what are you doing? Like the, the gym around the block for me that I go to, they're like, oh, like this sled. I'm like, well, it's half of this sled. Like, what do you mean it's half of this sled? I'm like, well, the other side doesn't have high handles. It's got a low handle. And that's just a completely different thing. And they have no idea like what I'm talking about. So can you explain it? A like explain a little bit more like in simple terms for the layperson what advanced training is on Saturday mornings outside in the cold for half of it and then the weather gets nicer but like can you guys explain it a little bit more for the for the regular person because nobody that goes to this thing is a regular person they're not and it's it's almost like explaining to somebody what mayonnaise tastes like right <laughs> I like it why do you like it uh, it tastes it's impossible to explain unless you <laughs> Right, you got to experience it. But what it's turned into, maybe for, this is the way I explain it to people, it's like the WWE for grown men who are washed up meatheads right now. It's a way for them to compete. They carry around a championship belt. They have tag teams. It's just a way for guys to continue reliving the youth that they have without either getting injured or injuring somebody else. And yeah, there's workouts, but that's just like, that's what's part of what makes it that WWE format. Yeah, it's it's so much fun. Like we, like, I I don't know why we get psyched about the belts and like we just it's just fun. And like I said, I wrote the the Twitter thread about it and like how I was listening to a podcast by this guy Ben Greenfield and he had a guest on where 
the guy said, like, he's like, you know, like, this is like for men specifically, like they need to work out in a group, like, and feel like, and have a wolf pack and be away from everything and like share an experience because like psychologically they need that for everything else that, that they do. So that's where, how I look at it. It's like, it's like, it's our own wolf pack of guys that are just, it could be, it's from all walks of life. Like people are just like, they, they have a business, they're a cop, they're a fireman, they're that whatever they are. And everybody just comes together and is just there to, to just be better and like have like, start their Saturday and start their weekend just on a, I don't want to say on a better level than everybody else, but like I just outworked everybody that was in bed on a, on a cushy Saturday morning. And like the way I look at it is just, all right, if I could do this at four, if I could do this at, if I could do this in four degree weather at six thirty on a Saturday, like just because that guy said no to me and my proposal, like, I don't care about that. Like I could get, I'll get another one, you know, like it's just, it makes you better at life in general. I hundred percent. That, that's the ultimate goal, at least in my mind, is how do I help these guys just be better at everything? Right? You said before I wasn't just trained of football players. How are you better at everything? And and that's kind of how event that's training is evolving, or it's evolved too. Is yeah, we do puzzles. We do puzzles while you're tired. What does this have to yeah. do with working out? Nothing. But when you played football, you were tired. It was fourth and one on the goal line. You had to remember what our blitz package was the same thing or you're in a stressful meeting or your your core tire goes flat on the garden state parkway at three o'clock in the morning it's a high pressure situation what are you going to do are you going to keep your cool or are you going to freak out hopefully on that field we're training you to keep your cool in a dire consequence type of situation absolutely and what does what does living an awesome life look like to you to me it's it's two things uh it's it's freedom to be you you're not living somebody else's life. You're living on your own terms. You know, before, I think you asked me like, what may be different. I, I read this in this book called The MVP Machine. I can't remember this picture. You probably know him better than me. He pitched for the Astros. He was a real wacko. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he was experimenting with how to throw a baseball the right way. But they said he had no, basically had no embarrassment. He was not worried about how, how stupid he looked. So to me, that's something in my mind that I really don't care too much about what other people think about how I'm living. As long as I've researched it myself, I've experimented on myself, and that's what I think has given me some freedoms that other people may or may not have. I'm not worried about social constructs. If everybody's taking the escalator, I'm taking the steps because I just don't want to do what everybody else is doing. I need to go a different way because I don't want to get stuck in that crowd. That, that's, that's one part of living an awesome life. And whatever freedom that is for you, time, money, whatever, everybody's got their own thing. Me, it's freedom. The second thing is how do I use my every bit of my talent to make other people the best version of themselves? How do I help them unleash their inner superhero because everybody's got a superhero inside of them? So to me, if you're doing those two things, I'm like, that guy's that guy, that girl, they got an awesome life. They're living the life. If you hit the lottery and you're sitting on a beach and you're not helping anybody else, I don't know if it's that awesome. Yeah, you're you're right about that because a lot of people think like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, I want to win the lotto and do nothing. But like, is that really is that really awesome? Is that really what you want to do? So I love that answer. That's like well, that's one of the best answers that we've had. I mean, we've only done six, seven of these now, but just still one of the best answers that we've had. And I need to know this. 
because I, I need to know this about everybody. But what is your go-to karaoke song? And you don't strike me as a big karaoke guy, but I feel like everybody has a karaoke song. I'm not a big karaoke guy because I am an introvert and I'm probably in bed by the time karaoke is going on. But I do like to sing. I do usually in the privacy of my own home. And Sweet Caroline is a big go-to karaoke song for me. That's good. I like that one. That's solid. That's a, That gets the crowd going too. Kind of get the crowd involved. Yeah, that, take some of that, the work away. That's the only. That's really the only reason for karaoke is to get the crowd involved. Unless you're good. I've only. I only know like two people that are good, and then everybody just shuts up. You don't need the crowd for that. But, but coach, thank you so much for going on for coming on the show, man. This was amazing. Can you tell everybody? Um, this is your. This is your moment here. Tell everybody how they could find you and plug the podcast. I'm not good at this stuff at all, right? I think I don't even know what my Instagram handle is. I think it's at Mahoney Advanced Train, ADV Train. I think just it Google is. Mahoney Advanced Training. Uh, I think you did a. I know you did a documentary of this thing being the uh, the best training program you never heard of, and this has really been an underground secret. So I'd say just Google Mahoney Advanced Training. You'll find whatever you need to find there. Even on Spotify, just put in Mahoney Advanced Training. You'll find it there. Awesome. Well, thank you again, and everybody else. Don't forget to go leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, everywhere else that you get your podcasts. Um, thank you for listening to the show. We're on YouTube as well. We are going to be full episodes on Twitter. Just listen. We're going to have awesome people like Coach Mahoney every single week. And, uh, Coach, thank you so much again. Um, I'll see you in a couple months, man. We're, going, we're getting back out there. Can I reveal the secret or not? Yeah, you could reveal the secret. Go ahead. All right. So Steve Armato is going to be a captain for the 2024 advanced training. I don't know what team it is yet, but he's going to be one of the captains. We got two captains. I won't reveal the other one today, but Steve Armato will be one of them because he is a, a sick, sick man that I know is going to rally the troops. I am I am honored, and I cannot wait. So they, they better be ready. I would be different. It's, it's different when you're a captain now. Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility you. on you, man. A lot of Tell responsibility. I'm telling you, they they better. I'm running a tight ship with this squad. So, well, and one, uh, one last thing, I got. I'd be remiss yeah. if I didn't say it. You, my friend, are living an awesome life, at least in my eyes, because I see the lifestyle you have. You're you're doing at least I think you're doing what you want to do, and you're also you are making other people's lives better. Even just having a guy like me on the podcast, or I see the work that you do. I know the videos you've made for me, the thing you've just come out of the way and helped me, putting me on. I don't even know what it's called. Some, uh, some I don't know what you call it, where I could do podcasts myself, a war room or something. I don't yeah. know. You're always giving to the guys in our program. So for me, you embody those two things of an awesome life. So I'm glad a guy like you is putting this thing together. So good work on your part, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. That is, very, that is one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So... Everyone, thank you, and we will see you next week.